electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. The competition to connect the world continues as satellite operators send more spacecraft to orbit to build out their broadband services back here on Earth. In December, European company SES deployed the first two of its new 11-satellite constellation, called O3B and Power. Built by Boeing, the broadband satellites were launched by SpaceX from Florida and are meant to deliver advanced communications to both government and commercial customers. Five, four, three, two, one, engines full power, and liftoff of SES and power. Go Falcon 9, go SES. CEO Steve Collar says it comes at a critical time as countries rethink not only supply chains and commodity sourcing in the wake of the pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also think differently about infrastructure, including communications. One of the first things that happened when Russia invaded Ukraine was they cut a lot of the fiber connections between Ukraine and Europe. And that was, you know, to some degree, as much as a problem for, for Europe as it was for the Ukraine. And, and that drove a lot of thinking into how do we secure um, networks within Europe? And it's a big part of what this secure connectivity project is ultimately about. But I think it's a trend that we see now globally. And, and there's, I think there's not a country on the planet that isn't thinking a bit more carefully about how not to be too much in the hands of any one supplier, any one country, any one nation, or any, any one service. On this episode, I speak with Collar about the business case for this new constellation, coopetition with SpaceX, and even the speculation of a potential merger between SES and Eutelsat. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. This is sort of the next generation of our O3B constellation. So we've been operating in medium Earth orbit, 8,000 kilometers from the Earth since 2012. Uh, and this is our, our next generation. And it's, it's, they're fully digital, fully software enabled, and uh, really a big sort of step change in capability, which is why we're so excited about the launch of the O3B Empower constellation. And now do they work... Uh complementary to and in tandem with your existing constellation or do they ultimately replace it? Yeah, the, kind of a bit of both. We've taken all of the lessons learned, everything that we've learned over operating in medium earth orbit for the last 10 years, and we've incorporated that into the Empower constellation. We've made everything kind of backward compatible, but also uh, developed a whole new technology, whole new techno technology stack around the Empower constellation. And of course, the satellites themselves are massively more powerful massively more capable, just one data point, 10 beams per satellite on each O3B satellite, 5,000 beams per satellite on the uh, the Empower constellation. So really a step, step change in capability, but taking a lot of the good stuff that comes from O3B. And Boeing is making the satellites. How quickly, yeah. are, they, how quickly are they being manufactured? Yeah, they're coming out of the factory pretty quickly now. So we've got the first two up and operational. The next two will launch at the end of February, then the next two will launch at the end of March and another two before the half year's up. And then we've got three more coming and we'll probably take a little bit of time there. But yeah, we're really, uh, we're seeing them coming out of the factory at a good lick now. 
Okay. And so what does that mean in terms of service from those satellites? How quickly does that manifest in a meaningful way? And what are, what are the economics behind it? Yeah, so we'll be in service Q3 2023. So we've got about, uh, what is that, six, six, seven months to go before we're in service. And that's because we've got to raise the orbit of the satellites. We've got to get them to where they need to be, circular orbit above the equator, 8,000 kilometers. And it really is the perfect or orbit to be delivering um, sort of non-geostationary broadband services because we're close enough to the Earth to take latency out of the equation, but we're far enough away from the Earth to make it really super economic. We can deliver global service with only six satellites. And then each satellite we add to the constellation, we're adding capability, we're adding capacity, we're adding performance, um, but we're not adding anything in terms of, of, um, of the, 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 the range of people that we can reach and the scale of the uh, the number of people that we can reach. So it's really just adding capability into a very scalable constellation uh, beyond six satellites. So it means it's incredibly economic. Of course, you know, I'm going to ask now, low Earth orbit's getting all the attention with SpaceX and Starlink and also OneWeb's constellation that's being rolled out as mm. well. How do you compete against those? Well, so I, there's a couple of answers to that. One is we don't in all cases because we, we're big believers in multi-orbit. As you know, we've, we founded our business sort of 35 years ago in geostationary orbit as we were you know, starting to deliver uh, direct-to-home TV and 365 million households later, we're still doing so. So we, we're big, big believers in geostationary orbit. And a medium Earth orbit for us was really the sweet spot between geostationary and low Earth orbit. All orbits have their benefits. All of them have to some degree, their drawbacks. And geostationary is fantastic for reach. You can cover the entire planet with only three satellites. Um, and if you install a dish on the ground, it tracks the, you know, the Earth is moving at the same speed that that orbit is moving. So you never have to adjust your antenna. And so it's a very, very uh, economic way to reach millions and even billions of people. The challenge is, of course, delay latency when you go out to the satellite and back again 600 milliseconds of latency you hear it on voice calls but in data networks it can pretty significantly impact the performance of data networks and the only way you solve it is bringing satellites closer to the earth leo clearly is the is the preferred solution from an, a latency standpoint the challenge with leo is uh, it's a very very complicated place to deploy services you have to have hundreds or thousands of satellites um, you have they, they only last four to five years. And so you have to keep replacing those satellites, which means, you know, a constellation can run to 10, 20, 30 billion dollars and still require huge capex. So we think Mio is actually really the sweet spot between geostationary and low Earth orbit when it comes to data services. And what we're really good at is delivering high flexibility, high throughput infrastructure like connectivity fiber, but delivered from space. Whereas if you think about the sorts of services that are more orientated around low Earth orbit, that's typically sort of lower throughput, more residential type services, similar to the ones that, that Starlink are offering today. But it is interesting, right? Because uh, government is a, or governments, I should say, are customers of yours already currently are. Imagine going to continue to be customers that and a market that you target um, with these newer satellites as well. We've seen things like Starlink being used, for example, in the battle crane, uh, in the battlefield in Ukraine too. So are, are, I guess, is it is it a much more competitive landscape and are some of those lines and some of those boundaries blurring a little bit? Well, and we think that governments will continue to want to get access to all orbits, right? So again, this multi-orbit strategy of being able to deliver the right service from the right orbit is pretty critical. And what governments want is resilience and they want sovereignty and they want security over their traffic. And, and one of the ways you deliver that to governments is that you make sure that 
your system is um, compatible with their own systems. And so governments themselves build systems in geostationary orbit, and we're building a complementary network in medium Earth orbit, and the government itself will look for services in low Earth orbit. And having terminals on the ground that can go flexibly between those orbits is critical because it means no matter where you are, you can always get your your information out or receive information into the place you are. So we think multi-orbit is the way to go. Uh, and we're we're sort of focusing our investments in geostationary orbit and, and medium Earth orbit. How big is the opportunity with governments right now as we do things, see things like defense budgets increase? It's it's really big. I mean, we we 50% of our network's business is government. Um, and that's been augmented recently with an acquisition of a company called DRSGES, which is a, a US government service provider delivering critical services to a number of different um, departments within the DOD. And that builds on the services that we were already delivering. And so the combination of those makes us a, a serious player when it comes to DOD and, and, and US um, secure communications. But I would say we're also an important player in on, in the global market. We're serving governments around the world and a number of European governments. You may have heard of the European Secure Connectivity Program, which is something that we are uh, planning to, 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 to play a significant role in and leverage the experience we have in delivering sovereign uh, and secure services to government. So it's, the opportunity is, is significant. And I think there's a growing trend of governments um, being aware of the strategic importance of space and access to space and how to integrate space technologies with, with terrestrial technologies uh, to improve situational awareness and understand what's going on around them. That's interesting. I mean, just to dig into the, to the connectivity initiative, uh, to that program a little bit more. I mean, what is that? What it, I guess, how big is that opportunity for SES? And what does that, I guess, potentially mean uh, as it translates on the ground? Yeah, it's interesting. You've got a couple of trends, sort of globalization and the need to um, build things in the in the most economic location, but also this idea of not exposing yourself to national security threats. And I think all governments are thinking more about that in post the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where, mm. you know, Germany, for example, was very exposed to the to, to energy and being overly dependent on energy from from Russia. We've seen similar things happening with chip shortages over the last couple of years, with effectively the world being overly dependent on China for for the production of chips. And I think whether you know, however we think about dependence on other nations, almost everyone now is thinking about sovereignty and security. And communication is no different from that. Hmm. One of the first things that happened when Russia invaded Ukraine was they cut a lot of the fiber connections between Ukraine and Europe, and that was you know, to some degree, as much as a problem for, for Europe as it was for the Ukraine. And and that drove a lot of thinking into how do we secure um, networks within Europe? And it's a big part of what this secure connectivity project is ultimately about. But I think it's a trend that we see now globally. And, and there's I think there's not a country on the planet that isn't thinking a bit more carefully about how not to be too much in the hands of any one supplier, any one country, any one nation or any, any one service. That's that's fascinating. I haven't heard it laid out like that. It makes a, but it makes so much sense um, when, when you do when you do dig into it a little bit deeper. I mean, so I have another question off of this, and that is, how do you secure the secure connection? I, I you know, because just going back to Ukraine and Russia's invasion, I mean, there mm. was the whole situation where you know Viasat's infrastructure was was impacted uh, with yeah. you know a, a cyber hack essentially as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that was, it was a pr pretty sophisticated one. Uh, I know you've had Mark on here talking about that previously and um, it is, it, it's an issue. I think one of the most important things is, is resilience and that means multiple paths out. And so uh, one of the unique aspects of medium earth orbit is we can deliver the sorts of throughputs that, that are meaningful when it comes to cloud, meaningful when it comes to terrestrial connectivity. And so by having um, important sort of locations established within government networks where they can receive service from O3BM power, they can effectively have true resilience from their fiber network. So if there's an interference on the fiber network, they can divert to, to, to satellite to O3BM power and vice versa. So a lot of what sovereign and secure communications is about is resilience and making sure that you can withstand threats wherever those threats may come from. But then obviously within our system and within any system, cyber becomes massively important. So understanding what are the weak points in any network and making sure that you close those weak points is critical. And we've mm -hmm. invested very substantially in cyber. Um, and, and I think in a way which is compatible with and complementary with most of the um, the actions that governments themselves take, because of course, governments also put a significant amount of uh, encryption and resilience within their own networks and their own systems. So it's not one answer, it's resilience, it's cyber within our network, and then it's also being compatible with and integrating with, you know, the cyber security measures that governments take. Okay. Um, I do want to get, speaking of governments, I do want to, I do want to get, uh, I guess, an update or your, a comment to the, to the, to the extent which you can share, which is this agreement with the DOD was a half a million dollar agreement that was struck back in 2018 around the O3B um, constellation. Uh, it's supposed to, I guess it's set to expire next year. Uh, expectation that you're going to renew that and you're going to continue to work with the DOD in that capacity? Yeah, so that was a, it was a half a billion um, dollar contract and it was it was essentially a, a blanket purchase contract. And what that allowed the DOD to do is go and procure services very quickly from us rather than having to go through extensive procurement processes, recognizing that what we did was unique, that we bring capabilities that are genuinely unique. And that that meant that uh, CENTCOM and other important parts of the DOD were able to just go and procure services and beams and, and we provided critical communications and critical connectivity to forward operating bases and to to other critical services as we developed the o3d constellation because we could deliver this fiber-like uh, connectivity much as we did to un peacekeepers throughout africa we were the critical communications link that allowed them to have you know professional communications and to share intelligence to share situational awareness no matter where they were and obviously, with O3BM Power coming, what we are seeking to do is really establish medium Earth orbit and establish O3BM Power as a, as a critical layer. And as, as I said earlier, I think, you know, the DOD and the government's going to continue to want to have access to geostationary, medium Earth orbit, low Earth orbit, and where possible, have synergies between them, be able to go flexibly between them. We, we're developing what we're calling ARC, which is our space brain. And that allows us to move customers between our own geostationary assets and medium Earth orbit. And, and the thought is that we will be able to do that um, similarly with the government going forward so that they can always get access to space no matter where they are. Very cool. Uh, I want to broaden this conversation out because we've seen quite a bit of M&A this year. Yeah. Uh, across the industry and even just in, you know, in recent days, Maxar uh, agreed mm. to 
taken private by a private equity firm by, by Advent. Mm. Um, but a lot of mergers, a lot of acquisitions, a lot of consolidation. Uh, SES itself has been in the news with reports that you might be interested in buying Intelsat. Is that, is that the case? Are you talking Intelsat about a merger still or is that, is that old news? So there's a lot going on, as you say, a lot, a lot going on in our industry. I've been in this industry for 30 years, and I'd say the last five years, we've seen more um, innovation, disruption, access to space, more investment in space than at any time in the last in the last 30 years. And that's exciting. But it's also true that there's more discussion around the merits of consolidation and co combination. And that can either be sort of horizontal um, we've seen with uh, Inmarsat and Viasat, for example, or vertical. And that's where we've been putting our focus over the last you know, handful of months with the acquisition of, of um, GES from DRS. And I think what that does is it, you know, in anticipation of everything that we're bringing with, with O3BM Power, we're now, we now have a true end-to-end -end capability with, uh, with, with full network management capability, with full integration capability for the DoD. Um, Look, the, the questions of horizontal consolidation won't go away. And, and I'm a believer that scale will matter in our industry, already does. We're, we're one of, if not the largest commercial space operator, but ultimately scale will be important. I think in the future, there will be fewer larger businesses. Um, and so, you know, the, those questions will continue. But for now, our focus has really been on that vertical uh, um, acquisition. Uh, and it's gone incredibly well. We've fully integrated the teams now. And we've got one government-focused business, and, and and that feels very well positioned for everything that we're bringing with Empower. Okay. You didn't totally answer my question, though. <laughs> well, you're not really expecting me to, right? But I, I like I say, I think scale will ultimately be important in this in this industry. Okay. So I guess just so with that in mind, just the fact that we have seen so much consolidation and and and, and much of it so far among and maybe one web's the exception, but among you know satellite operators such as yourself that are a little more established and, and tried and true. Um, I guess how are you thinking about how that continues to evolve in 2023 and beyond? When you do have some of these quote unquote new space players as well that maybe don't have free cash flow and are dealing with, you know, the capital intensity of trying to build out, a, you know, a satellite constellation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, look, I think the, the, the world has experienced a lot of uh, relatively cheap money for a while now. And I think that that that's made companies, um, you know, given everyone a bit of a false sense of security in terms of how businesses are run and financed and so on. And I think it's going to get tougher. It's already tougher. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to get tougher over the next sort of 12, 18 months. And, and there, financial discipline, strong balance sheet, um, strong cash flows are going to be critical. And we feel ourselves to be in very good shape from that standpoint. We're generating significant cash from our business. Uh, as I talked about earlier, our broadcast business is incredibly strong, delivering really significant cash flows that have enabled us to effectively invest in the O3BM power constellation on our own balance sheet and still be investment grade and still have the ability to raise capital. And of course, we've successfully delivered or are in the process of successfully delivering for the FCC with C-band repurposing C-band spectrum in the US. And that's going to earn us a further $3 billion at the back end of next year. And so we do feel ourselves in, in, in a good position. Uh, never take that for granted. I think leverage is going to become more and more problematic in the coming sort of 12 to 18 months. And so we're laser focused on that. Uh, but also, as you say, mindful of the opportunities that that, that may present us. Okay. Just final parting thoughts here. 
I guess the, the evolution of, of the space economy, uh, the evolution of connectivity, uh, what, what do you expect in the coming coming years? What, what that vision looks like to you? Look, I think it's really exciting. I think, you know, what Starlink is doing is 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 exciting for all of us and, and actually is growing the market, I think, for ourselves and others. I, you know, I think um, scale will be important also in, in, in low Earth orbit to be successful there. And so I think there won't be the number of players that that we see today. But the, the innovation is exciting. And that's what that's why I'm so fired up about O3BM Power. I think we've got a, a fully digital, fully reprogrammable constellation that can deliver capability that that I don't see um, any other player being able to deliver. And so for our markets in the markets that we're strong and focused on, which is typically, you know, high throughput, high flexibility, you know, dedicated carrier grade, uh, moving the edge of the cloud out in the network, the partnership that we have with Microsoft couldn't be more excited about that. But I'm also fascinated to see what happens, you know, in the in the in the bleeding edge almost of innovation as we look at small constellations developing and other, you know, related parts of our industry, space situational awareness, data relay, things that we're looking at doing using our constellation, integrating the different orbits rather than just having access to the three, actually integrating them. How does satellite play in a world of quantum keys and quantum key distribution in terms of securing future networks? So there's there's a long way to go in the industry and uh, and a lot of in innovation right now. Um, and what we do sort of over the next couple of years, I think will define not, not only what happens for SES in the next decade, but what happens for the industry in the next decade. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.